Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Nancy Klein is a teacher, researcher, school co-founder and writer. She's also the creator and pioneer of the thinking environment. An internationally best-selling author, the leadership organisation she founded in 1984, Time to Think, has touched the lives of millions around the world. Nancy Klein, welcome to Five of My Life. Thank you, Nigel. It's a joy to be with you again and to be here on this platform of, that means so much to so many people. Oh, well, we're speaking to you uh, in UK. Are you in Henley? Nearby, just where we had lunch once, yes. Fantastic. So you're in the morning, I am in the evening. And as is traditional on Five of My Life, we start with the film. And um, from the conversations that we've been having previously, this is the one that you found most difficult to land on. But you have uh, ended up uh, choosing the 2011 adaptation of the 2005 Michael Colony novel, uh, The Lincoln Lawyer. Yes, well, it was a difficult choice for me. And you know, I think it was partly because there are so many film categories that were vying with each other. And for me, categories like breathtakingly filmed, for example, you know, or worthy of a justice activist or achingly hilarious. There were so many. <laughs> and I decided in the end, I mean, there, there was even one category I did consider, which is anything with Robert Redford in it, which was for ages my unrivaled favorite category. But I decided really that the best category would be the category I might call I'll definitely love it and that would be courtroom drama so I started there finally and then you know it had to be any highly strung courtroom drama in, in which the good person's modest to die for clever attorney outwits the really 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 bad persons up themselves opposing attorney and I, and I do love the intellectual forensics of solving almost any mystery. I think my work probably comes in part from that love. Uh, I love wanting to know something and then discovering it. And I love questions and I love answers and I like even the tentativeness of answers. As a kid, I loved Perry Mason, which now looks very, very dated. But most of all, I loved reading Nancy Drew. So I'm a natural for this category and so having chosen that there really was no problem finally with the film the lincoln lawyer and partly you know i mean you could argue that i i probably should have chosen some of those very early ones those classics like 12 angry men or witness for the prosecution and and here at the wind and so on but the fact is i just love the lincoln lawyer and also i love matthew mcconaughey and so you put those together, and it was pretty much no contest. I like a lot of his films. 
And don't you agree? I think you do like Lincoln Lawyer, too, but irresistible acting genius plus, I don't know, searing the arrogance of inherited wealth and entitlement. And then that amazing plot twist, it turns out the bad person's not the bad person or the good person's a bad person. And I love all that. And I, I like how understated the truths are in this film. And I also love what I would describe as the disobedient humor. He's very disobedient, uh, this Mick, and at the expense of the hateful. You know, I love that. And then finally, I just want to say I love that scene near the end where you get to see the tender heart of really tough guys. And, and also there's a kind of, all together in Mick, there's a kind of humility, isn't there, that's wedded to victory. And so anyway, I adore it. And I was really encouraged when you said you liked it too. <laughs> well, so, I mean, I, I um, have been, as I do with all my guests, but it was incredibly enjoyable doing uh, my research on you. And I, in particular, loved uh, going through your is it a new website, your author website, nancycline.com. Uh, just the writings that you publish on that, absolutely fantastic. And one of the things I've recently read on that website is you, you are a, a lover of nuance. And I think maybe uh, your uh, admiration for that film speaks to that part of what you admire in in creative work, something that can flesh out a nuance? Oh, that's a lovely, lovely point, a lovely connection, Nigel, yes. And, you know, for all its robustness, I, I think this film, it, it does feed on nuance. And then we get to immerse ourselves in that. And I think when we're immersed in nuance, we are often immersed in a kind of gradual wisdom building, don't you? And I, I'm, I'm going to have to say, because listeners are going to ask me, is what, what were the other films that you were kicking around? And it was Fargo and Three Billboards, uh, uh, equally brilliant uh, choices, if you were to have landed on those. Yes. Oh, it was a hard choice. And those two, of course, I love because of the actor, but also I love the justifiable sort of presentation of morality in them both. I'm very moved by them both. I think Christopher and I have seen Fargo about six times, and I'm not your usual see a film many times person, but Fargo just, I don't know, it just gets you, doesn't it? And at the end, and the husband and the baby and the whole thing after so much right doing. Well, moving on to your book, fantastic choice on Five of My Life. We're going back 150 years because you've chosen the Oxford English Dictionary. And in researching this before this conversation tonight, uh, I found out a wonderful uh, story I'd never heard. is when the Philological Society of London in 1857 uh, decided that there needed to be such a thing as the English Dictionary. Um, they started collating uh, the words and after five years they reached the word ant <laughs> it took them <laughs> and it's the, they held a meeting and said i think we're going to need to do this differently <laughs> anyway so please tell us on five of my life nancy uh, why you chose the oxford english dictionary Thank you. I know. Isn't that just the most wonderful history? I love the thought of after five years having you say, actually, I think we're all going to be dead five times over by the time we finish <laughs> this. And, and, you know, the story of the um, Surgeon of Crowthorn by Simon Winchester that was made into the film called The Professor and the Madman. I don't know if, you, if I've got those. I think those are, are right. 
is the story. It's is the story of one of the contributors, which was that amazing prisoner um, that made a huge difference in how they were able to move forward the dictionary. But my history with this, with the Oxford English Dictionary, goes back to university. I was at Scripps College in California, just the most wonderful university school to go to for me, perfect, and still a beautiful, beautiful place to learn to think and to learn to value thinking as a human and particularly as a woman. So anyway, at, I was loving those classes uh, at Scripps when I was learning about the history of words, uh, linguistics in particular, but the history of words through literature study and so on. And um, and part of what I got to do for the linguistics course was to go into this exquisite library that Scripps has and sit in the alcove that housed the OED, the, uh, the um, Oxford English Dictionary. And in those that particular edition, there were two huge volumes. And I'm not talking about sort of a foot or 18 inches. This was, they were almost two feet or more of book. And so the whole library carol table would hold it when you opened it. And I, I can remember leaning over it and feeling that I was as, as if I was immersing my body in this book. But the thing I loved most and still do about it is that it's it's not just a definition, it's a history of each word. And so what you're experiencing when you look up a word there is, is literature itself and history and culture and religion. And so it becomes a fully enlightening experience just to look up a word in, in that dictionary. And then when I, the other personal sweet thing for me is that in 1967, Christmas, uh, my parents to celebrate my upcoming uh, graduation, gave me uh, the then two-volume edition of the OED, complete with its magnifying glass, because the, the, typing, the type was so tiny. And so I often think, you know, in that sort of what would you take with you if you could take only one thing kind of way, I would never tire of all of that richness contained and even those two books, although nowadays I would need a, a better magnifying glass. I do think the OED is standing there, sitting there, lying there, being open there um, as a celebration of most of, of human development, a, a sort of a, our astonishing development in evolution, the rise of primate life that conceptualizes and speaks in words and syntax, ever-changingly and, I think, enchantingly. And so I would go so far as to say that the Oxford English Dictionary helps us forgive some of our species' most monstrous traits. And so I chose that. Wow. So so there is me thinking you use it to check spelling and you talk about things in a far more uh, articulate and deep way, Nancy. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Nigel. <laughs> my, my father, in, uh, when I was going, going to university, not, not, not graduating, gave me a Chambers dictionary. And to this day, I have that uh, just on the side of my desk. And just it's just a, an amazing sort of a reference thing that I wonder if the young generation, a bit like records and videos, whether they will have the same type of relationship with the dictionary because, you know, everything's through through Dr. Google. They, they, they might never have the joy that, uh, that you describe of, a, of an actual hard volume. Yes. Oh, Nigel, if I can just say to that, I do have 
grave concerns about the if it ever becomes a fully digitized world. Now, to get the OED, you, you can still buy it, but the updating of it all is going on mostly online. And so even though I subscribe to it, you know, you just can't get your whole soul into the screen the way you can into a page. We're going to move to uh, the third choice on Five of My Life. Uh, and there's actually a Five of My Life Spotify playlist where all our guests' songs are on one playlist. It's, it's sensationally varied. And the, the quality of the songs is, is high because obviously they meant something to the guest. So it's a, it, anyway, I, I do recommend it to people to check out the Five of My Life uh, playlist. You, you have chosen, we're going to the 1980s, 1980 to be precise, uh, a song that was uh, written for and offered to Kenny Rogers, uh, but he rejected it because it was, quote, too literary, too esoteric. So the one who, person who actually recorded it, and I'm glad that he did because it's absolutely fantastic, Don Williams. Uh, it's the second single off his album Portrait, Good Old Boys Like Me. So what do you do with good old boys like me? Well, in my early 30s, having been trained classically and raised on classical music and, and actually having married a a classical music aficionado, I found myself inexplicably and horrifyingly at the time falling in love with American country music of the 70s. <laughs> and concurrently, I was learning, though, then this really matters because of what happened to my relationship with country music, that I was learning the importance of reclaiming um, pride in one's heritage, even if that heritage is woven with a country's original sin in the states, in this region, of course, of slavery. But I was learning that you can disavow the sin and work with your whole life to right it. And along the way, also be proud of the country itself, of its good, of, of its sweet, and of its just. And so it was a hugely formative time for me and and you could say that I was uh, sort of piecing together therefore warranted pride in being a U.S. Southerner having come on my father's side from Tennessee and my grand and my mother's side and grandmother from Mississippi and I was a white privileged Southerner whose family of six generations at one time was slaveholding. I was also populated with anti-racist and anti-sexist writing and activism over 200 years. It was an amazing juxtaposition. And so I began to be drawn to that region's country music. And along the way, against my imagined imminent, you could say, ostracism from classical music colleagues and friends, not to mention my husband, I stayed true to this newly found self. First, only privately, by listening to country music alone in my car uh, and always resetting the button, the station, to back to classical music before I went in the house. And then over time, gingerly sharing it with a beloved of mine and finally 
literally coming out as a country music lover in 1982. <laughs> so it took a kind of courage, I think, and independent thinking, you could say, to allow Don Williams, who was called before he died, the songwriter's songwriter, to sit in my life side by side with Mozart. And in choosing this song, Good Old Boys Like Me, as my favorite, I think it recognizes that this uneasy positioning of linearity on the one hand and paradox on the other, the recognition of human love as the core of all things beautiful can be found in much of country music, but especially, I think you could say indisputably, in Don Williams. And, of course, I could listen to that exquisite voice sing the phone book, I think. It was a challenging choice for me, but definitely a wholehearted one. And I hadn't heard the, the, the song before, to my shame, but it, it's a fabulous song and, and performed wonderfully. But the lyrics are quite... Um, uh, I mean, dark's probably the wrong word, but the, 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 I mean, I, I can see what Kenny Rogers w- was saying. It's it's not the Dave Love Sue, you know, la di la song. It's a, it's a, you know, the lyrics are, are vivid, vivid imagery and and thoughtful. And there is uh, sort of a suggestion of a childhood that wasn't without its problems, and it, which makes me want to ask Nancy, um, would you mind talking a little bit to to your childhood to describe it when you were a, were a young girl as opposed to a um, a graduate? I was raised in New Mexico, this stunning part of the world. And I was raised with privilege, but in a family of freedom fighters who also conformed. But I was watching these two Southern people, my mother and father, find the path, their own path towards making the world a little bit better, you know, sort of more in line with their own values of caring for, believing in, trusting, respecting, and wanting to build into leadership people of all backgrounds and experience and races and so on. So I was living in this privileged bubble, I went to boarding school in Texas um, as well, very white experience of life, but being loved into my own mind, being trusted to find my own way. I had a twin brother, um, a big sister, Merle, and I jumped rope and I was the pogo, the, the um, pogo stick champion of Clovis. And <laughs> I don't know, I was a cheerleader. I mean, I was all the things that you could say, really looking at my life of feminism now. And, and since I was about 26, Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And th- I mean, I, I have to say, um, your work personally changed my life. When I read uh, Time to Think, um, that, that was, it, it, it's still possibly one of the most impactful books I've, I've ever read. Uh, I, I can't uh, recommend more highly that people check it and all your other writing out. And you, you can access it all from nancykline.com. But it just, uh, it, it's a wonderful uh, insight into how you have evolved from, from such, you know, uh, loving, humble beginnings to, 
to the work, the body of work that you are now sort of bestriding. I uh, just think I've, I've got your latest book, The Promise That Changes Everything. I won't interrupt you uh, in front of me now. And that was a sensational read. Uh, and, I, and I'm loving hearing you talk about your choices, Nancy. We're, we're going to move to the, the fourth one. And it, this is a first on Five of My Life because it's the place and people have chosen slightly random things like the ocean or, or um, uh, you, know, you know, my health or whatever. But, but you have chosen, um, and thank you for taking it in a good spirit, you have chosen in the middle of a sentence when I'm writing. Could you tell us about that? Thank you, Nigel. And also thank you for your eloquent reflections there and generous. Well, yes, I wanted to choose initially New Mexico or Oxfordshire, which have in common a certain beautiful blueness of sky, though the New Mexico version of it is completely breathtaking. But about 10 years ago, I was driving in South Africa with a woman, Margaret Legion, who was a well-known, redoubtable freedom fighter economist in South Africa, and who changed the subject we were talking about as we were driving along from apartheid history and said suddenly, Nancy, where do you most love to be? And I said, even without pausing, I said, oh, with Christopher and in the middle of a sentence when I'm writing. Well, I remember that we both laughed in, at, at that non-geographical sense I'd made of her question. And I guess as a writer herself, she understood she was... She, she smiled. And so I've been thinking about what it happens to me in the middle of a sentence as it's forming, you know, as it's forming and reforming and rejecting and embracing and agonizing over and rejoicing in itself. You know, I, it, it's a heady experience. It requires me, this is what I really think is so amazing about it. It requires me to be entirely focused, entirely in the present even as meditation and mindfulness for me cannot achieve. And I, I also think that it's kind of like being conscious during what's called blastulation in embryogenesis, just after we're conceived, that, you know, we have no brains then to perceive that quintessential experience of formation. But getting to be in the middle of a sentence as it forms is a close second for me. So the, and so I feel it's a sacred time, yeah. So I, I am terrified of interrupting you, um, given your work and your book, and I have just interrupted you. I, I thought I was doing quite well up until then, but I've, I, am, I can't apologise enough. <laughs> I've just interrupted the lady who writes the book. Don't interrupt. I do apologise. <laughs> the, the, the process of writing for you, therefore, is a joy, not agony, that it is for, for, for some authors. Yes, I guess that's right. I mean, there, there are kinds of writing that I find tedious and and difficult. And I can feel daunted as I begin to write the writing I love to write. But when I was writing my very first book, Women in Power, How Far Can We Go Way Back, on the thinking environment, I remember that I had to climb the stairs to my study, sit down at my tablet then, I didn't have a computer, and um, imagine there were no people in the room. And there were no men or there was nobody that was telling me what to do and that whatever I thought is what I should write. 
And I think that was the beginning of knowing that I could just come and be a writer and ask myself, what do I think? What do I want to say? And then if it had to be shaped a bit differently and certainly edited, I love the existence of editors, um, it would be fine. But it had to start genuinely from who I was. And maybe that's why it's, it's, it's not agonizing because it's lovely to come back to yourself, I think. You, you wrote a book. I, I couldn't uh, get hold of it in time. You've written a book about uh, love and relationships. Would you mind talking uh, a little bit about that? Oh, thank you. Yes, that, the one Christopher and I did called at least 100 principles of love. Well, I need to know at least one of them. Give us some tips. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was such a lovely time in my life because I had just fallen in love with Christopher and about less than a year before. And we were thinking about how this love between us was was forming and it was defying so many of the social norms around us. And so we decided we would begin to write down what we were learning about love. Pretty soon we had 20, then we had 30, and pretty soon we started thinking of them as principles of love. And then we had 100, and then we had 109. And we laid them all out. There are no computers in. We laid them all out, each one on a sheet of paper. And in this little place, our little tryst where we used to meet for being together after I would come to England, we looked around the house. That little cottage was pretty much covered with paper and decided that there were at least 100 principles of love. And maybe we would compile them in such a way that it could be made into a teeny book. So, but the principles of love go from loving the self to loving each other to loving the world. I, I wish I could recall the exact wording of some of those, but, but certainly one that is pervasive now in our life and I think should be in people's lives is effectively that you can love another person only as well as you love yourself. And so facing yourself cherishing what you can and doing something about what you can't cherish so that you then can, uh, can lead to the most sort of intelligent loving of another person. And I think that's what I would say about the principles. The idea was, what does it mean to love intelligently? Beautiful. And, and, And you've been with Christopher for, is it 30 years, if I got that correct, or...? Yes, well, we've been in love uh, since 83, and we've been married since 1990. It's um, been an exquisite journey, and I moved here after we married because my work was more mobile, but uh, for seven years it was a transatlantic romance before AT&T or BT were uh, diversified at all, and um, before the computer. So I have a whole, I have seven years of love letters (laughs) Well, I'm intending, I'm now 76 and a half, and I'm intending before I'm 80 to get out all those letters and read them again. But they sit within view in these lovely folders by the year, and I know they're there. I'm glad. I'm glad they're not just all in a file on my laptop. 
Now, I have to ask you, uh, at a tangent, is when you are uh, a young child, you when you mention your age, you say, I'm, I'm four and a half, because that half is very important to you. Do you think when you approach, that there's a middle bit where you say, I'm 33, but you never say, I'm 33 and a half? Does it, does it come full circle as when you get to a, to, to, a, to a riper age that you start adding in the halves? Or is that just a personal quirk? <laughs> It's so funny. It's, you are so delightful. Well, I think I've never quite thought about this before, but I realize that I I think this just may be kind of peculiar to me or something, you know, this sort of particular to me. Because um, having nearly died when I was 26, I have always counted as precious every day of living. And I also, in the first year that I was working out my regime for recovery, from this cancer that I had. My husband at the time, Peter Klein, told me to light three candles of different colors and sit there and I would get some messages. And you know, at that time I was up for anything that wasn't going to hurt my body to try to help my body. And so, you know, what what can go wrong with three candles and <laughs> silence? So I did it and in came, <laughs> I don't know what to make of this, but in came this sort of knowing that if I did live with respect for my body, I would be able to live till I was 82. And I was 26 then, so 82 is really old. And I thought, I'm I, good, all right? I'm taking that in. I, I consider that divine, and I am, I'm, I'm all in with this. And so I think now that I'm 76, I'm thinking, hmm, this is getting pretty close. And I like that, as I intend to see that out for sure. But I'm, I think I'm also eager to maybe add on a little extra <laughs> after 82. I have a genetic predisposition to go to 101, so maybe. But I guess when I do the half part, I'm thinking, yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. Something like that. I think 82 should be a minimum, not, 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 not an end. <laughs> <laughs> yes, me too. I really don't want to keel over on May the 1st. Uh, when I'm 82. You were diagnosed with cancer when you were 26 and the prognosis was not in any way hopeful. It was, Nancy, this is it. Is that correct? Yes, it was that what had been removed that was malignant um, had left nevertheless so much metastatic cancer that I would be dead in six weeks. And especially if I didn't do the trials of chemotherapy that were recommended. And so we didn't do that. I figured that would probably kill me. But definitely we did, um, Peter and I put together a regime of restoring my immunity was the theory, which I think is pretty sound. Uh, but yes, I was expected to be dead in six weeks. And so it's been about 2,100 weeks so far. Wow. Like well, well, I reckon you're allowed to count in half years, given that story. <laughs> Thank you. We're moving on to uh, your fifth choice, a fifth and final choice on Five of My Life. And it is um, often a favourite of mine because people choose the most wonderful, wonderful items. And you have chosen my late twin uh, brother Bill's Bible. What a wonderful opportunity this category was, Nigel. I agree with you. It's It's a very interesting category and for choice and appreciated the chance to think about it. In the end, I settled on this Bible because my twin was very, very dear to me. And 
um, as twins typically are, and twins usually have a, a kind of inexplicable closeness that must come from what happens when you are coming into being together in the womb, I would guess. But anyway, he died 20 years ago, and in his life, we were very different, but he taught me many things, and things I've tried to live up to, I think, and that I've cherished all my life. And one was about equality as it lives inside love. And that was from a, um, a, a moment with him when we were about eight years old. We lived in this big house, and he had a room down the hall from mine. And we also had, as I mentioned, a wonderful big sister, Merle, who's still alive, and one of my dearest friends. Anyway, on this day, we were we were eight years old, and Merle was away at boarding school. She was 14, and but she was very much a beloved presence in our house, even in her absence. So on this day, Bill was in his room reading uh, comic books and sneaking pecan sandies. I don't know if you have those in Australia, but anyway, they're divine, but they're just basically sugar. <laughs> and so they were off limits in our house, but he was eating them and le- leaving the crumbs um, as usual. But anyway, I had been playing dress up, I think, as I recall, in my room down the hall, and all was well. It was kind of a normal day, I don't know, Saturday. And then suddenly, catapulted by some thought sequence, I can't now remember, I jumped up and walked resolutely down the hall to his room, and I stood in front of his bed and said, with no preamble, Bill, who do you love more, me or Merle? And he looked up from his Superman comic and then slowly rose to a sitting position and put the comic down, and he looked at me. I was shaking, and he leaned gently forward and said, Nancy, I love you both the most. And I remember the relief I felt. And also something too grown up for me, I think, to embrace uh, cognitively, but there was a kind of wisdom in that that was transportative for me. I, I sort of look back now and think that, the, that really my psychological future changed for the better in that moment in some way. I, I don't think I've ever learned anything more incomprehensibly wise than that. And just how he sourced that almost divine paradox, I don't know. I love you both the most. Wow. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? Fantastic. And and then, Nigel, he went on to become a fervent, though always tender, Christian, you know, fundamentalist and a striving one, a a kind of self-doubting, sometimes I would call even tortured one, but always a wise one. And as a given in his life, in his home, in his heart, I don't know, was this large, light blue leather-bound Bible with certain verses highlighted where he wanted to go often and pages worn with determined learning and prayer, a treasure it really was. And when he died, his wife Mary, my beloved sister-in-law, gave it to me. So now it's my treasure. Not to use, you know, not to use as he did. No one could do that, but... I think to live as a tribute to that sweet soul who often knew beyond his knowing and I guess led me to that kind of knowing too in 
Still does in my most uncertain moments. Just wonderful listening to you. And, and so I love you both the most. What a, what a wise thing. But also um, I, I read that he also said to you uh, in, in your uh, the year before he passed, um, just have fun. Is that, is that correct? Is it his sort of yes. wisdom to you to pass on? Yes. And I remember thinking he definitely does not understand the severity and urgency of this situation I'm describing to him. Because he said, Nancy, just have fun with it. So now Christopher does that. He's wonderful. He'll say, well, just have fun with it. And, and, and Christopher is, is a twin as well, I gather. Yes. And, you know, we talk sometimes about, and I think initially we were really struck by how much that matters, mainly because you understand the other twin is a twin, I think, when you're a twin. But also, maybe... Twins do learn a lot about loving as they're forming. Kate and I have got twin daughters, and it's just a a source of, of utter joy, just a wonderful, special thing to watch, even even though they went through a couple of years when they argued. But uh, <laughs> I, I think it must be a, must be a wonderful thing to, to be a twin. I, I have two more questions for you, Nancy, and, and thank you so much for your, your time and, and thoughtfulness uh, on, on Five My Life. The, the first is, if I were to ask you what's the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for you, how would you answer that? Well, there are many tying for first, I can tell you that. But I think that one I would love to mention might not seem on the surface as kind but now that you mention it i think i would call it that and that was my first boss c thornton brown who was the quaker director head headmaster of the school where i taught is my first job and i went into his office and um i said I need all these different things to be a good teacher, and I wonder if you could help me get them. I need a better desk and a nicer chair, and I need a really good inbox for all of my papers, and and I, I don't know, I need a better ruler, the kind that's see-through. And he listened and listened and listened and listened to all this list of stuff. And he said, when I finally stopped, he really taught me about not interrupting Nigel, I'll tell you that. And he leaned forward on his, on the, you know, across his desk, and he said, Nancy... To be a good teacher, you need only a very few things. You need something worthwhile to teach. You need people who want to learn it. And you need to be sure that you talk less than they do. And then he said, I don't care which books you teach. I don't care how little equipment you have. But one thing I hope you will remember is that you want your students to learn you and you need to be sure you like what they're learning and i would say that that was a kind act sounds like an amazing man and 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 on that note it's the perfect segue nancy to the the traditional six and last question of five my life which is uh, who would you like to hear on five my life next and and why well that's really good there's so many people aren't there i don't know what your criteria are but what whom i would love to hear um i would choose francis fitzgerald i think who is now a member of the european parliament and she was deputy prime minister deputy Taoiseach of ireland and for 
nearly 40 years has been one of the most articulate, eloquent, um, and almost irresistibly right um, person on issues of women's freedom and a society free of sexism. And she's gorgeous to listen to, and she's still making this huge, huge difference in the world. What a, what a wonderful choice. We will um, we do follow up everybody. Uh, it doesn't mean we get them. I'm, I'm still trying to get Obama to come on, but um, we will absolutely uh, follow up your sixth choice. And Nancy, thank you so much for um, sharing your five on five of my life. Thank you, Nigel. It's been a complete joy. And I thank Mandy too. Uh, you create a thinking environment. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.